0: Chapter 6. It's a whole new era with a whole new peril. An overnight convulsion changes the Christians from outcasts to men of distinction, wealth, and power, facing utterly novel problems. For the Christians who lived anywhere in the Roman Empire in the second and third decades of the fourth century, and that included nearly all Christians, the world suddenly turned right side up. Gone was the threat of imminent execution, which had been a lifelong reality for many. No longer do they have to dread public humiliation or slave labor in the salt mines or clothing factories. No longer need they glance back over their shoulders every time they walked down a street. The chill fear of sword, crucifixion, fire, and wild beast, which had haunted them on and off for centuries, soon faded from living memory. They were free. In fact, they were more than free. Their faith, instead of sabotaging their social standing now elevated them to positions of importance and power. Suddenly, the doors to financial prosperity and ownership of the best land swung wide open. Benefits enjoyed by senators, soldiers, veterans, and scholars became available to the Christian clergy. Almost overnight, the villains became the builders of the world's greatest empire. The subversives had come out of hiding to run it. That this astonishing transformation occurred so rapidly was no accident. Constantine pushed for it aggressively. To be sure, he recognized the religious demographic when he took the reins of the empire into his hands. In the West, 90% of the population was still pagan, and paganism was woven into the fabrics of all the empire's institutions and customs. But immediately, and without unduly upsetting the religious status quo, Constantine began to institute legal and administrative changes, codifying the new freedoms and powers of the Christians that would transform the empire unrecognizably in the years ahead. However, Constantine was not advancing his Christian agenda in the role of an evangelist. He was preeminently an emperor, and he well knew that only if his realm were unified could it survive. In the days of the old Republic, religion had been a powerful force for unity. It must be so again, and the religion he chose to do it with was Christianity. The Roman government had always been responsible to maintain the Pax Deorum, to make sure the gods showered their goodwill on the empire. Thus emperors maintained the cults, especially the imperial cult. And when the gods showed signs of displeasure, the emperors took appropriate signs or steps to placate them. But Constantine no longer believed in pagan religion, let alone that it could unify the empire. He said pagans would not have lost the war against him if their oracles had been true. Worse, he called paganism a devilish deception. Instead, the newly converted Constantine assumed he had the blessings of the highest divinity. God, he believed, had chosen him and raised him to power to create a Christian empire. It would be a delicate task, but he was convinced the state above all must now support the Christian church and those social and moral principles the church represented. He enacted many laws for the honor and consolidation of, his, of religion, writes the 5th century historian Sozomen. To view the reality behind that simple summation, however, is to behold a building and legislative program of staggering dimensions. Constantine immediately ordered that Christians who had been banished should be permitted to return to their homes. Those who had been sentenced to hard li- labor in the mines or weaving and dyeing works were released. Christian soldiers who had been stripped of their military ranks for refusing to offer incense to Caesar were offered the choice of returning to their previous station or receiving permanent immunity from public duties. Next, he showered an array of privileges on the Christian clergy. One of his first acts was to grant them immunity from municipal obligations. This was no mere release from trivial trivial obligation. These civic duties were a great burden under the later empire, entailing heavy personal expenses for those who fulfilled them. Pagan priests and scholars always had been exempted. Now Constantine extended this privilege to the Christian clergy, freeing them to do what Constantine believed they should be doing. Or as he put it, that without any disturbance, they may serve their own law, since the conduct of the greatest worship of divinity will, in my opinion, bring immeasurable benefits to the commonwealth. But he went further, slowly conferring not just privilege, but power on the Christian hierarchy. He ordered that court cases begun before an ordinary court could be transferred to the local bishop, even up to the last minute the bishop's decision would be final, and the local civil authorities were to execute the bishop's ruling. Then, to support the high regard for celibacy and continence among Christians, especially among the clergy, he rescinded the clauses of Augustus' centuries-old Lex Papia Popea, which had penalized those who remained unmarried or childless. To legal benefits, he added financial benefits. He opened both state and private coffers, Setting an example in Rome, he returned property, consisting mainly of cemeteries, to 25 churches in the city, then made donations to them from his private funds. He also gave the current bishop, Miltiades, the winter residence of, of his wife, the Empress Fausta, the palace on Lateran Hill that would remain the palace of the bishops for, of Rome for a thousand years. He ordered provincial governors not only to permit Christians worship but to subsidize with local funds the catholic church of the christians a law of the year 321 allowed romans to make unrestricted requests to the church this coupled with the rising popularity of all things christian and the increasing number of wealthy converts brought a steady stream of gifts and legacies to the church perhaps the most precious gift and certainly the most symbolic was an order constantine made as his new capital constantinople was being built he told his friend and biographer, Bishop Eusebius of Caesarea, to have 50 great Bibles made in finely bound volumes and distributed to the churches. Many Christians in the, later per- in the last persecution had heard the ugly knock on the door and the soldiers' demands for co- demand for copies of the Christian scripture. Many copies had been handed over under threat of death. Many had been piled and burned. Manuscripts that had taken months to copy, pages filled with the words of life, words that gave instruction and hope to the fledgling movement. Many times the Christians huddled together and wondered whether all their scriptures were doomed to the ashes. Now the tide had turned. The empire itself was ordering the manufacture of the Bibles, magnificent Bibles at that, and all at state expense. How things had changed. Nearly all Roman emperors considered themselves builders, each seeking to leave a legacy in wood, brick, and stone. But no emperor surpassed Constantine's ambitions or accomplishments, writes University of Toronto classicist T. G. Eliot, who calls him the greatest builder of all Roman emperors. Like the others, he built secular buildings, baths, mausoleums, arches, state banquet halls, aqueducts, fortifications, and so on. But his greatest architectural bequests to posterity were his churches, the most visible witness to his Christian program. The form these usually took was that of basilica the large, multi-purpose public hall that Romans usually erected at public squares. Constantine used this form to fill a new function. To his architects, the basic basilica design seemed a perfect setting for Christian worship. Thus, a typical Constantin- Constantinian basilica was oblong, usually with sided aisles set off from a central nave by arced colonnades. High up in the building, the colonnades supported a brick wall, whose f- windows filtered light to the nave below. The roofs were normally flat and made of wood. The great vaulted ceilings of earlier Roman buildings seemed too pagan, too ostentatious for Christian worship. Besides, they would have distracted attention from the nave, which directed worshippers' eyes towards the semicircle front of the basilica, known as the apse, in which stood the altar. The effect was astonishing. Typically, light streamed through the nave windows, bathing the congregation in an island of brilliance surrounded by shadows. Increasingly, paintings, mosaics, jeweled robes, and precious metal objects donated to churches by wealthy patrons magnified the impression. The fourth-century Christian poet Prudentius describes the effect of one basilica, whose ceilings with gilded beams make the whole chamber seem like a sunrise. In the windows, glo- in the windows, glow stain- stained glass, so they look like fields studded with gorgeous flowers. Though the city of Rome remained largely pagan in Constantine's days, he did his best to adorn it with Christian churches, including at least six in and around Rome. Most lay outside the city walls, but there were two great exceptions. One was the Lateran Basilica, which he erected next to the palace he had given Bishop Melthiades. Originally dedicated to the Savior and later to John the Baptist and John the Evangelist, it took the endowment of 29 estates to finance it, it had a lofty apse, silver statues of Jesus, and a silver screen with images of the resurrected Christ between four angels. The apse and sacristy, the adjoining room where the vessels of the Eucharist were kept and where the priests robed, contained seven golden altars, 115 chandeliers, and 60 gold and silver candlesticks. It was the first large Christian ecclesiastical building and was proclaimed by the Roman Christians as the mother and head of all churches. Saint Peter's and the the other great church within the city, is considered by many to be the most remarkable. Begun in 332, it was both a basilica and a martyrium, built on the site where Peter is believed to have met his death. Like St. John's, it overflowed with precious objects, furnishings, and rich materials of all kinds. Another church built by Constantine, named Holy Cross in Jerusalem, though the church, in fact, is in Rome, contained precious relics, including it was said, a part of the true cross donated by Helena, Constantine's mother, which she had uncovered in the Holy Land. However, Constantine certainly did not confine his attention to Rome. He wanted to make the entire empire a holy land like Palestine, and he built grand churches in towns small and large nearly everywhere. In Antioch, for example, the lofty golden octagon next to the imperial palace on an island in the river or- Orontus was named the Church of Concord, entire Eusebius of Caesarea describes the lavish church there, the earliest portrayal we have of a Christian church. But beyond the orientation, Eusebius saw something larger, something that was happening inside Christians and inside the church as a result of the emperor's efforts. A mighty breathtaking wonder is this cathedral, especially to those who pay attention only to externals, but far more wonderful are the archetypes or divine patterns of material things, I mean the renewal of of the spiritual edifice in our souls. Constantine's ambitions went with him to the grave unfulfilled. He died before he could see some of his greatest projects completed, such as St. Peter's. Even while he lived, his ambition was greater than talent allowed. The empire simply did not have a sufficient number of gifted architects or engineers to properly erect the variety of projects he started, a lack he often complained about in his letters. The result was that within a generation of his death, Many of the buildings were already falling into decay. Nonetheless, as classics expert Michael Grant puts it, Constantine's prolific erection of the Christian basilicas and other buildings amounted to an architectural revolution. However, Constantine did not think his Christian duty began and ended in monuments of stone. He sought also to reshape the Roman society so that it would at least begin to reflect Christian principles. Given the number of pagans, he still needed them to run much of the state apparatus. But it quickly became clear that he favored Christians in his appointments. Ablabius, for example, whom some called the greatest of his praetorian prefects, was a Christian of humble origins and no doubt owed his advancement partly to the faith that he shared with his emperor. Not only individuals, but whole communities also benefited if they were Christian. Thus the villagers of Orchestus and Phrygia, when they petitioned to separate from Nicolaea and be granted their own city charter, reminded Constantine that most of them were Christians. The emperor took favorable notice of this in his reply. The inhabitants of Maumia, the Christian port of Gaza, and those of Antaratus, obtained city status in the same way. His legislative program vividly reflected the same Christian bias. In 316, he forbade the branches of convicts on the face. Echoing the words of Genesis 1, the face is formed to the image of heavenly beauty, he said. Within another ten years, he ordered the, that criminals were no longer to be devoured by beasts or crucified. He also tried to outlaw gladiatorial contests, but their continued overwhelming popularity prevented it. They were to continue in the West for another century. Several laws showed Constantine's concern for the sanctity of marriage and his disapproval of irregular sexual relations. Those reforms were highly acceptable to 4th century Christians. Those of the 21st century would shudder at their severity. He tightened the rules of divorce. Women were no longer allowed to repudiate their husbands, even for drunkenness, gambling, or running after other women, but only for murder, poisoning, or tomb robbery. Bastards were severely penalized, being denied all rights of inheritance from their fathers. Parents who had sold their daughters or been accessory to their seduction were similarly condemned. Though Christians as a whole still accepted slavery as a fact of economic life, they did insist on just treatment of slaves. This was reflected in many of Constantine's statutes. For example, he ordered that slave families were not to be separated when a state was broken up. The church was empowered to enact manumission when a slave had qualified it, thereby avoiding bureaucratic processes that could long delay a slave's freedom. This delivered another message. People began to connect freedom with the church. Even so, Constantine's laws on the controls of slaves remained much in line with those of the ancient world. A master was not necessarily liable to charge to a charge of homicide if a slave died following a flogging or confinement in chains, but only if the master deliberately killed him or tortured him to death. In one area, Constantine waged a futile campaign against the greatest curse of the declining empire, the corruption of the civil service. There was nothing that money could not obtain, and without money nothing could be obtained. Litigants could not gain admission to the law courts without greasing the palms of numerous officials, and the wealthy were able to get their gifts transferred to friendlier courts, if they gave the right people appropriate gifts. Constantine deplored the system, let the rapacious hands of the officials forthwith refrain, he wrote in 331, let them refrain, I repeat, for unless after this warning they do refrain, they will be cut off by the sword. It seems, though, that the disgusted emperor found that he could do little more than remain disgusted. Bribery continued as a way of bureaucratic life. Constantine learns a lesson. In his first venture into Christian affairs, he cracks down hard on a dissident sect, meets total failure, and leaves them to God. Christianity cannot and should not hide the fact that included among its faithful have been many individuals who mistakenly believed their own preoccupations to be those of the Lord, creating mayhem in the process. Few such characters in early Christianity are more colourful or more significant than the Donatists, who roiled the African church for well over two centuries. The Donatist schism had its root in the horrendous Diocletian persecution from 303 to 305. Initially, the demands were that Christians give up their holy books. Eventually, Christians were required to sacrifice to Roman gods. Those who succumbed to the pressures faced recrimination from other Christians, especially at the hands of a hard line party formed in Numidia, in southern Algeria, which would become known as the Donatists. They claimed to have found in Bishop Cyprian of Carthage the only true model of grace under pressure. He had greeted his execution order with a shout of, Praise God!" Like Cyprian, the sect agreed that clergy who handed over scripture, called traditores, must be banned from the church, and that any holy function performed by a traditor was null and void. Whosoever consorts with the traditores will have no share with us in the kingdom of heaven was their battle cry. Their wrath soon turned against Mensurius, a successful a successor bishop of Carthage. They especially reviled him for urging, along with his deacon Sicilian that food parcels be denied a group of Christians who were jailed during the persecution. Mansurius argued that because smuggling food to prisoners was illegal, it would inspire further arrests. His motives were impure, however. He had learned that some of the prisoners were denouncing him, and perhaps the church as well, and he must have thought it would be better to leave them unfed. The storm broke in full after Mansurius died and was replaced in 311 and 312 by Sicilian, among those who those formally consecrating Sicilian's ascendancy was Felix of Aptunga. Because Felix was regarded as a traitor for handing over scriptures, his presence at the ceremony made Sicilian's consecration null and void, critics argued. Sicilian already had other troubles. He had earlier rebuked a woman named Lucilla for her odd habit of kissing a human bone, which, she said, was the relic of a martyr. During the Eucharist, Lucilla departed in a huff. She was quite rich, and besides possessing an eccentric personality, she was capable of carrying a grudge to extreme. She now had her opportunity to repay the slight. With Lucilla's support, if not her outright financial backing, as some later alleged, Bishop Secundus of Numidia called a council of 70 African bishops in 312. They nullified the election of Sicilian, and they named in his place a man named Majorinus, who was apparently on Lucilla's payroll. The Church was now split. The schismatic movement that pressured these events would take its name from the next year from the Donatus, who was elected as its leader, and who was by all reports an inspiring figure. He strongly believed that the Church was not a school for repentant sinners, but was the refuge of the Holy alone. No mercy for sinners, was a Donatus maxim, when they applied especially to candidates for the priesthood. Right from the start they made no fetish of mercy. Constantine, strongly desiring to end this growing internecine dispute in the church, referred to it I referred it to a council in Rome in 313. The charges were reviewed and if Donatius had any hopes the established bishops would soon, would proclaim Donatism as the true way, they were quickly shattered. Donatus was criticized for creating the, disturbi- the for disturbing the discipline of the church and accused of creating outright schism, he and his followers rejected his findings with much vigor. Constantine, who could be very patient, called a synod at Arles the next year to revisit the evidence. This was a massive affair, with 600 bishops present. Donatus received another sound drubbing, as did, for that matter, the sport of horse racing, band, and the theatrical professions excommunicated. Donatus responded with what had become their typical disdain. Constantine's patience was growing thin, but in July 315, he told the Donatus that if they could prove anything against Sicilian, he would treat it as if they had won the case. This they could not do, but neither would they be quieted. By 317, his patience had run out. Constantine exiled, exiled their leaders, and soldiers confiscated their property. Historian Henry Daniel Rops called this the first time in history the sword was used in the name of Christ. Donatus, to no one's surprise, raised an army of peasants and thugs from the mountainous regions. These recruits became known as Circumsalians, Circumriders, Rovers, and Marauders, who lived on those they tried to indoctrinate. They, uh, they liked to call themselves Captains of the Saints, and referred to the heavy clubs they wielded as Israels. Many churches were attacked in Carthage. many clergy and lay people perished. There was, of course, retaliation. At one time, imperial troops occupied the three Donatist basilicas at Carthage, and soldiers were accused of taking time from their official duties to rape Donatist women. All of which had been, res- all of which had the result of strengthening the Donatist cause. The Donatists argued that they represented the common people and even slaves. Augustine later commented, "What master was there who was not compelled to live in dread of his own slaves if the slave had put himself?" under the protection of the Donatists. By May 321, Constantine, who was waging his military campaign against his brother-in-law Licinius, concluded that his attempts to achieve unity were doomed. He granted tolerance, declaring he would leave the Donatists to the judgment of God. This was not the end of their story. Persecution renewed in 346-348. to 348. During this time, Donatists is believed to have perished. Many martyrs were created, including Maximian and Isaac. Whose bodies were supposedly sunk by their jailers yet somehow swam to shore, according to the Donatist version of events. There is no disputing the resilience of the group. It survived Constantine and for a time was the predominant religion in North Africa, with 300 bishops and by some estimates 500 by others. The movement began to collapse around 400. In January 412, the Emperor Honorius exiled his clergy and confiscated Donatus' property. The Circumsalians responded with a new bloodletting, though all of that was largely rendered moot in 429 when the Vandals conquered North Africa and slaughtered Catholics and Donatists without distinction. Donatism finally died out in the Muslim conquest in the 7th century. What is to be made of this bloody upheaval? There was this vital di- theological difference between the Donatists and the Catholics. The Donatists vehemently, sometimes violently, insisted that the validity of clerical functions, such as baptism, depended upon the character of the administering clergyman, while the Catholics held that the validity of such functions was based on their endorsement by Christ. The same question, how to determine who is a worthy church member or leader and who is not, has been asked elsewhere without bloodshed. One of Constantine's most lasting secular edicts, shows how he balanced his Christian program with pagan realities. In March 321, he decreed that all judges, city people, and craftsmen shall rest on the venerable day of the sun, making an exception for farmers, since it often happened that this is the most suitable day for sowing grain or planting vines, so that the opportunity provided by divine providence may not be lost, for the right season is short. His reasoning isn't specifically Christian, and he makes what it seems to be a pagan reference in the process. But his choice of Sunday was no accident, since this was the day of worship for Christians. He also required his troops to say generically addressed prayer on Sundays, that, so that, as Eusebius puts it, they ought not rest their hopes on spears or armor or physical strength, but acknowledge the God over all, the giver of all good and indeed victory itself. Again, there is no specific Christian reference, but assuredly a Christian sentiment. All these changes cannot help but fill Christians with wonder. Eusebius, for example, described how believers felt about the new churches rising before them. We who had hope in Christ had inexpressible happiness, and a divine joy blossomed in all our hearts as we saw places that had, a little earlier, been laid waste by the tyrant's malice, now reviving as if from a long and deadly injury, and cathedrals rising again from their foundations to lofty heights. These changes soon began to fill the churches. Though it is extremely difficult to put specific numbers on it, Christians probably constituted 10% of the Western Empire, 50% in the East. When Constantine was converted, perhaps 3.5 million believers. By the end of the 4th century, over 50% of Western Empire's inhabitants claimed Christianity as their faith, and the percentages were much higher in the East. This became both a blessing and a curse. Many people converted because they were, for the first time, able to give the Christian faith a fair hearing. They saw both paganism and Christianity for what they were, and they opted happily for the latter. At the same time, other pagans sensed which way the political winds were blowing. They discerned in Christianity a sure path to imperial appointment and material reward. It's not surprising that churches soon were brimming with people, many of whom were there from any but spiritual motives. This created enormous problems for priests and bishops as they strove to introduce thousands of clueless new believers to the intricacies of the Christian faith and practice. Standards simply had to be lowered, both for Christian membership, or church membership, and for ordination, to keep up with the flood. Many old believers decried the new worldliness that soon became evident within the church. But what is amazing is not that the church lost some of its ardent devotion, but that it retained any at all, in the face of deep tensions produced by popularity, power, and wealth. The churches hardly knew what to do with the new infusion of wealth. It not only introduced greed and materialism into everyday church life, but it also undermined the traditional relationship between the clerics and people. The revenue from which the churches supported their clergy, maintained their buildings, and distributed charity to the poor had always come entirely from voluntary donations from the faithful. But beginning with Constantine's reign, the old system of voluntary contributions fell into disuse. Clergy now gained their support from the income on church property, which accumulated rapidly, and from state funds, this soon produced a wall between laity and clergy—a wall that only grew higher in coming centuries. Worse still, the new order of things created a dilemma that would plague the church for centuries: the proper relation of the church and the Christian emperor, or church and state, as later generations would define it, for the first three centuries of, ex- of its existence. The church had settled its own disputes, hardly ever seeking outside authority because there was no such thing. Now, however, there was such authority. Constantine had ruled for just six months when the Donatists, a rigorous schismatic sect, having failed in appeals to the Bishop of Rome and before two church councils, now appealed to the emperor. In this instance, Constantine condemned the dissident group, tried persecuting them, quickly, quickly gave up when he saw that it didn't work, then tolerated them. For Constantine, it was a sobering lesson with wide implications. He learned, and would learn painfully thereafter, that united the empire behind a new religion was much more difficult than he had imagined. The Donatist affair also provided a foretaste of the awkward new relationship between church and state. Christian groups, it was to be, repeat, it was to be repeated, dis, repeatedly discovered, would appeal to the emperor, then protest against state interference if his decisions went against them. For the moment, however, Constantine was not confused in the least. In matters of faith, he said, my will is law. He adopted the role of universal bishop, thinking of himself as the final authority in religious as well as secular matters. At first, Christians hardly argued, and it meant that where major controversies divided the church, decisions were often shaped by the intrigues of the imperial court as rival parties tried to manipulate the emperor's support. It would take another generation or two before the church as a body could begin exercising independence and exert some pressure on the emperor, though individual bishops and also dissident groups began resisting him from the outset. This reluctance to oppose him formally was partly due to the inchoate organization of the church itself, as well as its frequent internal dissensions. Bishops did not meet regularly except at provincial synods. General councils could be called upon by the emperor who might summon them merely to endorse a decision he had already made. In the meantime, it was mainly the emperor's informal ecclesiastical advisors, like Eusebius, bishop of Nicomedia, and later of Constantinople, who had the emperor's ear. If If Constantine's impact on the church was convulsive, much more convulsive was his impact on Rome. In effect, he rendered the venerable old city obsolete. He did the unthinkable thing. He eventually displaced it as the imperial capital. In the 4th century, Rome was still the formal and sentimental seat of the empire. It was the venue of the Senate, the ancient magistrates, the consuls, the praetors, and the quaestors. Though all free inhabitants of the empire were Romans, a citizen of Rome was considered Roman in more esteemed sense. The Birth of Christendom by making Christian morality the basis of the law, Constantine launches a tradition that will endure until the late 20th century. The notion of Christendom, a political world in which Christianity enjoyed a privileged position, was slow to take shape, even after Constantine's Edict of Milan, issued in 313. Although the proclamation required complete religious toleration for Christians in the Roman Empire, it did not mandate any special preferences for them. And Constantine did not make Christianity the exclusive religion of the empire. It was not until after 380, under the emperors Theodosius I in the east and Gratian in the west, that pagan temples were closed and all subjects of Rome were required to become Orthodox Christians. Nonetheless, from 313 onwards Constantine gradually added the values of Christianity to the legal structures of the empire. He built Christian churches in Rome and elsewhere made Sunday an official day of rest in in Rome in 321, and enacted laws forbidding the use of magic and divination. Furthermore, as Emperor Constantine held the title Pontifex Maximus, or Highest Priest, with the duty of overseeing the Roman religion. After 313, he in effect promoted Christianity as the official faith of the Empire. He assumed the authority, though he was unbaptized, to settle settle Church disputes. So it can be truly said that under Constantine, although the Christian hierarchy and the secular government remained separate entities, what has come to be known as Christendom began to emerge. And many of the reforms instituted by Constantine lasted for centuries, their efforts so widespread that they linger within the memories of many people in the 21st century. There was till very recently an understanding among most people that Christian values underlie public institutions. Until late in the 20th century, for example, many predominantly Christian countries and states enforced Sunday blue laws that forbade transaction, transacting business on the Lord's Day, precisely the same in principle that Constantine had promulgated in 321. In Christendom, human laws were believed to derive from God's laws, as revealed in the Ten Commandments. In the ancient Roman world, abortion was widely practiced. Although Roman law punished abortion, on the grounds that it deprived a father of his children, only Jews and Christians considered the taking of an innocent unborn life to be morally wrong in itself. It was only in the Christian Roman Empire, during the reign of the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century, that the law began to prosecute abortionists severely. With Christendom became the growth, as the centuries passed, of a Christian culture. Not only did Christian values receive legal support, but Christian belief permeated great art literature, and music, and engendered such customs as daily life as praying before meals or at bedtime. As the center of every Christian community was a Christian house of worship, whether a soaring cathedral or a simple wood frame chapel. All this was possible because there was a sense of belonging to a society whose members knew that their rulers not only shared, but would protect, Christian beliefs, and that the church was a school for citizenship. From Constantine's day forward, however, A distinction was gradually made between the secular political world and the church. After all, Jesus himself had said, give to the emperor things that are the emperors, and to God the things that are gods. Christian judges might preside in the law courts, but these officials were not to try to rule the church itself. Even Constantine's imperial title of Pontifex Maximus was eventually taken by the popes. Only rarely did the church attempt to become a secular authority. Instead, church and state existed side-by-side in a sometimes amicable, sometimes uneasy, and occasionally violent relationship. In the 20th century, the pendulum swung to the side of the state, and the Catholic intellectual Richard John Newhouse was one one of hundreds of Christian voices, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox, complaining about moral impoverishment in the naked public square, from which religion largely had been banned by court fiat many public schools and government agencies nowadays hesitate to call winter holiday Christmas, and schoolchildren who earlier might have been told to memorize the Ten Commandments have been reprimanded if they quote the Bible provingly in their homework. On the other hand, Christendom often discriminated against other religions, Jews especially, but even minority groups of Christians. At its worst, that discrimination could entail ghettoization, the loss of civil liberties, banishment, and even execution. When daily Bible reading was common in U.S. public schools, the Bible selected was typically the King James Version used by Protestants, making Catholics, Orthodox Christians, Jews, and others uneasy. For these reasons, many Baptists and other conservative Christian groups that historically suffered persecution from other Christians have vigorously supported hard-line separation of church and state. As the third Christian millennium dawned, policymakers and both the church and the government continued to wrestle with their relationships to each other. For while there is much negative to be said about the about the Christendom that Constantine created, there is much good that would, after 17 centuries, be lost. It had been some time, however, since Rome had been the administrative capital. Emperors lived transient lives, lasting Rome visiting Rome only for brief periods between military and diplomatic campaigns. Each emperor had his favorite residence, where he preferred to conduct state business. Most recently, Diocletian had built himself a palace at Nicomedia, and his successors, Galerius and Licinius, had usually resided there. There was nothing new in an emperor's establishing a semi-official capital in some provincial city, nor in an emperor's giving his name to a city. But no capital took away from Rome... Rome took. No capital away from Rome took root as in Constantinople, the city Constantine built on the shores of the Bosphorus. At the time, it was called Byzantium, founded in the second half of the 7th century BC by the Greeks. In about 150 BC, it became a dependency of the Romans and soon after the eastern terminus of the Via Egnatia, the main road from the Adriatic eastward. Constantine, like Septimius Severus before him, occasion to lay siege to Byzantium, and his trained military eye must have been impressed. It occupied a key position at the crossroads between Central Asia and Europe. It afforded easy access to the Balkan provinces, which played such an important role in the third and fourth centuries. From here, too, the eastern frontier could be more readily reached. There may also have been personal religious reasons for the move. Despite his building efforts, Rome remained saturated with pagan buildings and institutions. The senatorial aristocracy clung to their pagan ways. The altar and statue of victory still stood in the Senate House. The people of Rome, for their part, resented an emperor who pointedly omitted the sacrificial sacrifices customarily made on state occasions. It seemed inevitable, then, that Rome would never become the Christian capital of Constantine's dreams. Political and strategic considerations dictated the creation of a new capital elsewhere. So, on November 8th, 324, a Sunday, Constantine formally laid out the boundaries of his new city, moving them more than two miles further out and roughly quadrupling its territory. According to the 5th century historian Philosturgius, he traced the line of the future walls on the ground with a spear, in the manner of a Greek founder. The same historian reports that Constantine's companions were amazed at the vast circumference of the new walls. In less than a century, Theodosius II would double the territory of the city once again, and today it is the walls of Theod- Theodosius that still stand. The building and populating of Constantinople were pushed f- forward with great speed. The emperor offered various incentives to people to settle there, especially if they are skilled in the building trades, and the new walls were completed by 328. In May 330, The new city was formally dedicated with elaborate rites on the Hippodrome. Coins minted that year announced the event to the world. On the obverse of these coins, the figure of Constantinopolis carries a cross scepter over her shoulder, thus emphasizing the Christian character of the city. Like the old capital, Constantinople was built on seven hills and divided into 14 administrative districts. There was a senate. Though its members ranked below the members of the Senate in Rome. And like the people of Rome, the people of Constantinople received subsidized grain. The new capital gave to Constantine an unparalleled opportunity for construction on a grand scale. He enlarged and embellished the existing baths of Zeuxippus. In the area today occupied by the Mosque of Sultan Ahmed, the Blue Mosque, Constantine built the Imperial Palace and finished the Hippodrome, began by Septimus Severus. While enlarging it to a capacity of fifty thousand, the hippodrome served not only for the entertainment of the people, but also for public acts of state, and in the center median the emperor placed the serpent column from Delphi, which commemorated the victory the Greeks had won in four hundred and seventy nine BC at Plataea over the Persians. It was only one of many objects that Constantine had approved appropriated to decorate his new city, a pillaging that caused St. Jerome to mar- remark. And nearly all cities were stripped bare. In front of the old gate of the Severan walls, Constantine built a forum that bore his name. Inside stood the Column of Constantine, nearly 80 feet tall and nearly 10 feet wide at its base. The base contained an altar so the Lord's Supper could be celebrated, and the Column was crowned by a statue of Helios. Its features adapted so as to represent Constantine, likely a reference to Constantine being Christ's representative on earth. Constantine also began the construction of at least two churches in Constantinople, the Church of the Holy Apostles, which he cherished, and the church n- known as Hagia Erin, Holy Peace. Though work on the third church, Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom, also known as the Great Church, was probably begun in 326, the dedication did not take place until 360, under Constantius II. These three churches, Hagia Sophia, Hagia Aaron, and the Holy Apostles, or to dominate the, political, the city politically and ecclesiastically for the next 11 centuries. When Paganism Held the Holy Land Reversing Hadrian's bold effort to secularize Jerusalem, Constantine begins to build. Two splendid churches he constructed still hold their central importance for Christians. Jerusalem and its environs had long been holy to the Jews, and after such monumental events as the resurrection occurred in the region it became deeply significant to Christians as well. Recognizing its importance to both religions and having no affection for either, the emperor Hadrian had attempted to secularize the Holy Land. He renamed Jerusalem as Alias Capitolina and, among other things, erected a pagan temple directly over a site Christians believed to be Jesus, Jesus' empty tomb. When Constantine became emperor, he set out to reverse Hadrian's work, beginning a vigorous campaign, uh, building campaign in the Holy Land. First, in 333, he constructed a chapel and basilica where the Virgin Mary reportedly gave birth to the baby Jesus. Additions, repairs, constructions over the centuries produced the structure that stands in Bethlehem today, the Basilica of the Nativity, the focus of centuries of turbulence and violence as various factions seized and held it. In mid-2002, a group of Palestinian gunmen occupied the church for more than a month in a standoff with the Israeli army. The Basilica of the Nativity is the oldest church still in use in the Holy Land. Encouraged by his mother, Helena, Constantine also demolished the pagan temple that Hadrian built on the site of Jesus' resurrection, placing it in 336 with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre summoning a council to Jerusalem to dedicate the new church, arguably the most important site in the Christian world if it was, indeed, built at the place of Christ's crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. It was destroyed during a 6th century revolt and then rebuilt by Justinian. When the Persians invaded the Holy Land in the 7th century, they spared the church while destroying every other major house of worship. As Muslim and Christian forces occupied and defended the building in the ensuing centuries, it became increasingly barricaded and buttressed, taking on its present appearance of a fortress. The founding of Constantinople had vast consequences, secular and religious. For one thing, it hastened the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West. Constantinople controlled all the wealthy provinces in Asia Minor, and the East, which had contributed the greater part of the imperial revenues, and had also had easy access to the Illyrian provinces, which remained in the imperial army's best recruiting ground. Deprived of the East, the West simply didn't have the money or manpower to withstand the barbarian assault that was coming. But Constantinople survived and became the heart of what continued to call itself the Roman Empire, though its capital was nowhere near Rome, and its people spoke Greek, not Latin. Late in the 4th century, and throughout the 5th and 6th, barbarian peoples would sweep through the West, devastating it and turning turning much of it into a wilderness. But Constantinople would stand unconquered for more than a millennium. At the same time, Constantine was so lavish in spending on the erection of new churches, maintenance of a sumptuous court, corn subsidies, and above all on the building and adornment of his new capital, on which he is said to have spent 60,000 pounds, by weight, of gold, he was forced to institute two new taxes. One of these was levied on the poor and proved extremely oppressive. All the authorities, Christian and pagan alike, agreed in painting a lurid picture of the terrible distress that it caused when it came to collect these taxes. On the other hand, he also created a stable and abundant gold currency by issuing a gold coin, the solidus. It became the the standard coin of the Byzantine Empire and indeed of the Mediterranean world for many centuries. The pagan world in the East watched all these changes with a mixture of chagrin and fatalistic resignation. Though his mere model metropolis, Constantinople, did contain pagan temples, it was from the start an essentially Christian city. And there, as elsewhere in the East, relatively few pagans openly resisted Constantine's program. But the Constantine era met with a very different response in the West, especially in Rome. Rome was the pr- perfect urban sub setting for paganism and its many spectacular cults. Christianity at this stage could not compete with the massive celebrations that marked, for instance, the funeral feast of Attis on March 24th. How could Christian worship hold attention against the Torobolum or bloodbath, the castration rites, the moaning crowds of flagellating penitents? The Romans could watch miracle plays and wild dances, routinely accompanied, said Christian observers, by obscene acts and songs the pageantry and color appealed to something deep in the Roman people. At a higher social level, the and ancient spedate rituals of the pagan pontifical college, conducted in the superb surroundings of the temples whose history went back, in some cases, nearly a thousand years, appealed to Roman nostalgia, to patriotism, and to a longing for beauty and order that may never have been, but was nonetheless remembered. It was not surprising, then, that Constantine, in seeking to obliterate paganism, would direct his initial assaults on such externals. Where he had previously tolerated pagan temples, he now tore them down. As at Afaka, Afka, on Mount Lebanon, where the cult of Aphrodite had well-earned reputation for licentiousness, at Aegea and Silica, the emperor's soldiers leveled the temple of Asclepius, the center of a popular healing cult. At Antioch, the temple of Muses was diverted to secular purposes, He built many churches, like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre at Jerusalem and the Basilica at Mamre, right on top of the pagan shrines, which he destroyed in the process. At at Heliopolis, or Balbuk in Phoenicia, he forbade the cult of Venus Heliopolitana, which included ritual prostitution, and ordered the construction of a church. In many provinces, the funds of pagan temples were confiscated and put into the imperial treasury. A historian of a century later wrote of bands of Christian youths going from town to town, allegedly armed with letters from the emperor ordering obedience to his decrees and browbeating the populace into abandoning their pagan priests. Statues were destroyed or paraded into the streets, and the people were cajoled and intimidated into ridiculing what their ancestors had venerated. Nevertheless, such wanton vandalism and callous contempt was not typical of Constantine's rule and was not widely practiced until the era of the emperor Theodosius Theodosius, I, later in the 4th century. While some pagan temples were destroyed by Constantine, many remained open. His law prohibiting the restoration of decayed temples was more typical of his approach. It is also noteworthy that there are no records of pagan martyrs under Constantine. In fact, Constantine himself retained a few pagan superstitions. Whether they were a vestige of his pagan past or just a diplomatic gesture to seek the support of leading pagans is difficult to say. At any rate, we know he invited the Neoplatonist philosopher Sopater to his court and asked him to consult the, the omens for a favorable day for the dedication of his new capital. Still, by Constantine's day, pagan temples were increasingly viewed as public monuments to the past rather than centers of worship. By the time of his sons, Paganism was visibly dying in cities, though in the countryside it hung on tenaciously for a few centuries. Another surviving religious phenomenon presented him with a somewhat different problem. Because of their rich tradition and exclusivity, the Jews had been regarded as an irritation by many emperors over the years. From the time of their first conquest in Judea, Romans in general harbored a lingering anti-Semitism, but as long as Jews did not challenge or offend the pagan status quo, the empire was happy to let them run their own affairs. However, now a Christian emperor ascending the throne, things became more complicated. Constantine cared little about the Jewish attitude toward paganism, but deeply about their relationship to Christianity, a daughter religion that was also a direct rival in many ways, and often anti-Jewish as well. Constantine inherited this Roman suspicion and antipathy to the Jews, and his Christianity intensified this feeling. He publicly denounced them for, as said, murdering the Lord. He enacted legislation that prevented Jews from owning Christian slaves or circumcising any slaves, and from proselytizing in general. Any effort to prevent a Jew from becoming a Christian was forbidden by law. On the other hand, he allowed them greater access to the city of Jerusalem, and extended to synagogue leaders immunity from municipal obligations, thus giving them equal status with Christian clergy. Jewish converts to Christianity seemed especially worthy to him, so when he had the opportunity, Constantine liked to shower favors on a new convert. The historian Epiphanius tells of a certain Joseph, a highly respected member of that Jewish community, and a disciple of the patriarch Allel, whom Epiphanius described as hereditary head of all the Jews of the Roman Empire. Joseph spied Allel secretly being baptized on his deathbed and later discovered copies of the Gospels in Hebrew among Allel's belongings. Scandalized, Joseph hid the Gospels to protect Allel's reputation, but became fascinated with them and was caught reading them. He was publicly whipped by his fellow Jews, who then attempted to drown him. Joseph escaped and became a Christian convert. Hearing the story, Constantine bestowed honors upon him and an imperial pension. The grateful Joseph held Constantine, helped Constantine build churches in Galilee, at Tiberias, Zephorus, Nazareth, and Capernaum. Prejudice, was, prejudice there certainly was, but as with paganism, there is no record of Jewish martyrs under Constantine. Alas, this would not remain so in the future. As to Constantine's own personal Christian commitment, that has been debated for nearly 1700 years. One thing, however, is beyond debate. He laid the foundations of what came to be known as Christendom, a society at least nominally based on the assumption that Christianity is true. In one form or another, Christendom was destined to last for nearly a hundred generations. Constantine's contribution, however preliminary, Remains remarkable. How Judaism Survived. With the Temple gone and revolt quelled, the great rabbis lay the foundation in the Torah that will long sustain the faith. However, devastating the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 for the religious beliefs of the Jewish people, the failure of Simon Bar Kokhba's revolt 65 years later was, in one respect, worse. Until the Bar Kokhba defeat, the faithful could console themselves by recalling that the temple had been destroyed once before, in 586 BC, that time by the Babylonians. Had not Jerusalem been despoiled then too? Had not Jewish fortunes recovered? Had not the people been restored to their city by the Persians fifty years later? Had not a second temple, ultimately far more impressive than the first, been erected on the same site? Surely Yahweh would do the same again, and surely the powerful Bar Kokhba, hailed by his followers as the Messiah, was God's instrument to make this happen. But the Son of the Star, as he was nicknamed, suffered a complete defeat, and the Roman Emperor Hadrian resolved that there be no restoration of the Second Temple as there had been of the first. He virtually leveled the city of Jerusalem, filling its ravines with rebel. Even before the revolt, he had renamed it Aelia Capitolina. He, he erected new Roman buildings on the site and promised to execute any Jew who entered the place. He also laid waste to Judea, destroying 985 towns and villages, rendering the environs of Jerusalem into a wilderness. The cost of the revolt in human life was vast. An estimated 580,000 Jews were killed, according to the Roman historian Cassius Dio, and so many were sold into slavery that the slave market collapsed. To the survivors, one truth gradually sank home, Jewry, was no longer a nation state. The day of the temple and the ritual sacrifices was over. If the faith was to survive, it must do so, do so through the local synagogue. It must be learned as well as lived. It must—the uh, day of the rabbi, the teacher—was at hand. The synagogue, with its local congregation and often often a great distance from Jerusalem, was anything but a new phenomenon. Of course, it had been a central part of Jewish life since the deportation that followed the first fell of Jerusalem seven centuries before. It was through the synagogue that Paul had founded the first Christian congregation in the Hellenistic world. The means by which the Jewish faith could survive without the temple was already in place. Christians, both then and ever since, have raised the question, why did the Jews not simply recognize that Jesus was the Messiah and accept him? The Jewish scholar Jacob Neusner Research Professor for Religion and Theology at Bard College in New York, this question of whether Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah was a central point at issue. Christians, particularly convert from Judaism, had to ask themselves what they must do now the Messiah had come, whereas other Jews had to ask what they must do while waiting the Messiah. The two attitudes were fundamentally at variance, he writes. The feminist theologian Rosemary Radford Ruther agrees. In her history of anti-semitism in Christian history, faith and frat- fratricide, she views Jesus' identification of himself as the Messiah, the most fundamental affirmation of the Christian faith. But to the journalist and historian Paul Johnson, the core issue is deeper than the issue of the Messiah, rather it lies in the question of the Messiah's nature. Johnson in A History of the Jews writes, The nation notion that Jesus was divine, implicit in his resurrection, And in his foresight of this miracle and in his subsequent epiphanies was present from the very beginning of apostolic christianity moreover it was accompanied by the equally early belief that he had instituted the ceremony of the eucharist in anticipation of his death and resurrection for the expiation of sin in which his flesh and blood the substance of the sacrifice took the form of bread and wine the emergence of the eucharist the holy and perfect sacrifice as the Christian substitute for all Jewish forms of sacrifice, confirmed the doctrine of Jesus' apotheosis. To the question, Was Jesus God or man? the Christians therefore answered both. This made a complete breach with Judaism inevitable. The Jews could accept the decentralization of the temple, they could accept a different way of view of the law. What they could not accept was the removal of the absolute distinction they had always drawn between God and man. Because that was the essence of Jewish theology, the belief that above all others separated them from the pagans, by removing that distinction, the Christians took themselves irrevocably out of the Judaic faith. The Jews could not conclude the divinity of Jesus as God made man without repudiating the central tenet of their belief. The Christians could not concede that Jesus was anything less than God without uh, repudiating the essence and purpose of their movement. If Christ was not God, Christianity was nothing. If Christ was God, then Judaism was false. There could be absolutely no compromise on the point. Each faith was a threat to the other. Whatever the core issue, a mutual antipathy radically developed. Matthew's gospel, usually regarded as the most pro-Jewish of the four, has the saying, his blood will be on us. Seemingly to reflect the Jews taking upon themselves responsibility for the crucifixion. The term the Jews appears 71 times in John's gospel, almost always disparagingly. Sometimes it refers to the Pharisees, sometimes to the Sadducees, sometimes to the temple authorities, sometimes all the Jewish people. John himself was a Jew. Although the language, as Johnson's history points out, is that of first century Jewish polemic used by Jews in hated theological argument among themselves, in the centuries ahead, these passages will be cited to validate vicious Christian persecution of the Jewish people. Insofar as language was concerned, the Jewish response to the Christians was equally violent. Rouse your fury, pour out your rage, destroy your opponent, annihilate the enemy, had been the curse against Hellenism invoked in the second century BC during the Jewish resistance movement. At the end of the first century AD, it was redirected against the Christians, and thereafter, the denunciation of Christianity makes its appearance in Jewish biblical commentary. But this reference to the Christians, Christians forms more, than a little, more little more than an incidental aspect of the new Judaism that emerges from the Jewish disasters of the first and second Christian centuries. What came to replace the Temple was the Torah, meaning the law and the commentaries on it that had been slowly developing over the Temple's final years. Now the Torah was the only thing left. The refugee, rab- refugee rabbis who, settling at Jemnia on the west of Jerusalem on the Mediterranean coast, gradually developed into what Johnson calls a system of moral theological theology of extraordinary coherence, logical consistency, and social strength. The Jews, he writes, turned the Torah into a fortress of the mind and spirit. Yet in doing so, the Jews turned, on, turned in on themselves. Those who had not been lost in the two wars nor converted to Christianity formed their own communities within Roman society. But they were largely closed communities. Where the Jews had once constituted one tenth of the Roman Empire, um, had engaged in its philosophical and cultural activity, and had won tens of thousands of converts to their faith and its practices, they now isolated themselves and poured their boundless intellectual energy into the study and development of the Torah. It was this fact more than any other, says Johnson, that saved them as a people and conveyed them from the ancient world through the medieval world and into the modern one. By the 21st century, the Romans were long gone and the Hellenistic Greeks, the Gauls, and the Celts that had vanished into other people. However, the Jews were still identifiable and it was their long long isolation, holding fast to the Torah in the midst of the sea of Christianity and Islam that enabled them to do so. But it was to be a journey fraught with pain and it began on September 18th of the year 324 when the Christian Constantine became sole emperor of Rome and their theological foes, the long persecuted Christians, were now or soon would be running the empire.